Hey, Bike Portland podcast listeners, your host, Jonathan Maas here. I just wanted you to know that what you're about to listen to isn't a new episode. You might not realize, but we actually launched our podcast in 2013 when I co-hosted it with the wonderful Michael Anderson and Lillian Karabayek. We published about 20 episodes between 2013 and 2016, and so what we're doing now is just re-uploading them all to our current host. You can find links to all our episodes at bikeportland.org slash podcast. So sorry for any confusion, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Rent is too damn high. What? People working eight hours a day, four hours a week, and a third job. What you gonna do with a lot of rent? Fathers can't barely afford to feed their children breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Hello, and welcome to the September 2013 episode of the Portland Afoot Commuting Podcast, a Bike Portland production. I'm Lillian Kerbake. And I'm Michael Anderson. Each month, we dig deep into an issue that matters to Portlanders who get around using bicycles, buses, and other sensible tools. And we give it to you in the time that it takes the average Portlander to get to work. Well, this month, we are talking about something that matters more to how you choose to get around than your age. Or your race. Or your gender. Or your income. Or your body's type or shape or strength. We're talking about something that matters more than any of that. Where your journeys start and where they end. We're talking about the location, location, location of where you live, work, and shop. Just about every week on Bike Portland, I post about a new development in the world of low-car real estate. We call it the real estate beat. And a few months ago, I wrote a Reed College thesis that looked in-depth at an interesting real estate question, which is, does being close to bicycle infrastructure make an apartment more desirable to rent? So today we're going to talk about a few things. First, we're going to look at the awesome future of neighborhood retail. And frankly, why it's hard to do them right. We'll wrap up by talking about what I think is the biggest story in Portland right now, and that's the central city housing boom that's about to crash into our apartment market. It'll be great. I say the rent is too damn high. So maybe before we start, we should we should kind of brief everybody on our own real estate situations. Yeah, I think that's it's I think it's useful in these situations for everybody to be very clear and upfront about where they're coming from, what their perspective is. Everybody has sort of skin in the game of real estate and in the face of the fact that we're all renters or we're all homeowners or whatever we are. We all have work at some place that has had a, to make a decision based on where to locate. And so in my case, most days, most days I work from home uh, for my office and studio apartment, which is the upstairs of a nice house at 60th Avenue. The biking isn't great. The transit is great. It's right next to three max lines at the 60th Avenue max stop. I pay 750 a month with utilities included, and I am super happy with that situation. So I, I live in one bedroom of a two-bedroom apartment in very central Portland. Which means that it's about an eight-minute bike ride to downtown for me. Um, and as I recently discovered, about a 20-minute run <laughs> to the City Portland building. Interesting. <laughs> um, and I have really phenomenal transit uh, around me. I'm on... I have access to five frequent run transit lines within a five-minute walk of my house. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any rail around my house immediately around it. Um, I pay five fifty a month, which is 
the most I have ever paid to share a place in Portland. I was paying under 300 a month for the first seven years I lived in Oregon. So um, this feels like a lot to me. Um, so that's our perspectives. Let's move into talking about one of the coolest startups I have seen in a while, in my opinion, in Portland, which is the Green Zebra Grocery. Have you seen the stories or I saw some coverage on this little bike blog. Yeah, yeah, called bikeportland.org. Is that the one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I got to talk to the woman who started. She used to be the CEO of New Seasons for like eight or nine years. And before that, she worked at Whole Foods, Lisa Sedlar. And so she had this idea that the next step for groceries should be to revisit the neighborhood like corner store with fresh food. And so she's taking the New Seasons quality of food to like a plaid pantry sort of situation 7,000 square feet here's what she's got she's isn't got, that much bigger than a plaid uh it's it it's bigger than uh yes it's 6,000 to 7,000 square feet okay. is the total and uh some of that is the back space which where okay. the kitchen is and so on but yeah I think it's going to feel a lot like a plaid pantry for our non-Portland listeners, yes. Plaid Pantry is the bizarre mi- name that we give <laughs> to our 7-Eleven convenience store-esque yeah. Yeah. chain, yeah. which so has, is- incidentally, nothing plaid in it, I've looked. Green Zebra Grocery is going to have a huge curving salad bar across the front, front of the room, fresh grab-and-go sandwiches, four cook-from-scratch soups, freshly cooked Indian food, a micro-roast coffee of the week, a meat department that includes grass-fed beef, Beer, wine, and kombucha on tap. Tables at the patio out front. It's going to be really crazy. Uh, and does this not sound like the most Portland thing yes, ever? Yes, it is. And like all this fresh food and like, oh, we're, we've got we're got all these local suppliers and so on. It's it's very stereotypically Portland. But the, here's the thing is that she said, she points out very accurately that the buildings she is locating in used to be Safeways. This did not, this is not like a weird Portland thing. This is a Portland returning to its roots which are the same roots as every city in every country where we all used to shop at these corner stores that was the way i lived in england briefly when i was a kid and that was what we did was we walked out of the corner store to get our groceries every day and she says that that is sort of like she thinks it's the natural state of things and that we've gotten away from that because we've been subsidizing car movement so much in the last 50 years but now that that is changing people are looking for places nearby. And so she's hoping, anyway, that she can capitalize on it. And what's cool about it, I'm going to keep expounding, is that, like, people have been talking for 20 years about 20-minute neighborhoods and how do, how do we build these neighborhoods where people can get to everything they need to within 20 minutes of their house. That's all, like, completely dependent on retail actually existing, right? right. The, the planners of the city can say, oh, there's a retail hub here. But, like, if, no, if like, Safeway isn't going to build a little retail store at the right place then it's no good at all whereas this is the manifestation of it actually happening that the city has made these plans it has built these neighborhoods it has made it it, it is it has avoided spending a bunch of money to make it easier to drive the result is that it's now easier to get around on bikes and foot in a lot of cases and lisa sedlar wants to take advantage of that by starting a new business that is going to serve people who are getting around in this way so the private sector is doing what it needs to do for this to become a reality, which would be an awesome reality, in my opinion. This definitely digs deep at the idea that bicycle-based retail or retail that's driven by low-car consumers is definitely catering to this 
higher income group, the kind of people that are buying kombucha on tap. I think what's interesting about this is a lot of the talk about retail being driven by people that get around by bike are better consumers because they shop more often and they, you know, they shop in smaller quantities, but more frequently mm-hmm. is definitely, I think, around the idea that yuppies ride bikes mm-hmm. and that yuppies are great consumers. Is that fine? I mean, most retail growth probably happens targeting upper middle class people. That's right. So equity around 20 minute neighborhoods how important is it that we frame retail in the scope of this must cater to all consumers and how important is it that we just cater to building retail that does create 20 minute neighborhoods you're saying that it's awesome for some people who can afford nice food in a 20 minute neighborhood that is also going to be expensive because it has such easy access to nice food right and that's going to suck for people who can't afford it right uh, you're right. The truth is that like low-income people are disproportionately more likely to ride bicycles right. for whatever reason. Uh, not much. It, it, bicycling is basically evenly divided between the different quadrants of the American income ladder, and it with a slight overemphasis on the poorest quartile. Uh, so, biking is inherently a equitable, universal way to get around. If cities are built in such a way that it's possible. And one of the ways that it might not be built that way is that it's just unaffordable to live anywhere where there's, there's good biking. So the, the study you're referring to that says that people on bikes come more often and spend the same amount or more per month, it actually, once you controlled for their demographics, their income and their age and everything, it found that people on bikes spend exactly the same amount per month as people in cars. So it's not the, the fact that they're coming in on bikes that makes them richer. Yes, the food is is more expensive. I don't know how much more expensive. A plant pantry is more expensive. Right, than... you're paying the convenience fee. Right, exactly. And I see poor people in plant pantry all the time because presumably they want to pay the convenience fee, right? Um, the some people are going to prioritize the lowest cost food that they can, and they sh- they have every right to do so, and I think that's good. Some people, even very poor people, are going to prioritize fresh food, and I think that it's good for people to have that option. It's going into my old neighborhood, actually in North Portland, the first location, which is a very mixed income neighborhood and is going to be the only place within walking distance for lots of pretty low-income rentals that has lettuce. Right. Which is cool. It would be great if the lettuce were slightly cheaper. Food in this country, it has gotten cheaper faster than almost anything else we buy. Like a carton of eggs, if it were adjusted for inflation, would cost like $6. Right. Just interested if we're going to see the entire... uh, bicycle-based kind of philosophy around retail. Of where close to home, multiple visits. Right. Is this the future of retail? Low-car transportation is the future of cities. It's There's no other way to fit people in cities. And the result of that is that people are going to be doing what they've always done, which is getting their groceries on their way home from work and getting going to bars that are near their place in the mode that they're most useful to most accustomed to traveling in and that's going to change the different locations of retail and the ways that retail works and so on so yes i think that that is the case green zebra is a great transition actually into the second topic which is studies that look at the effects of bicycle infrastructure on real estate right so So the question is if people are changing their commute habits when everybody got around on highways. Now, if people are getting around on bike highways, then people are going to want to be next to the bike highway. Right. So 
there's been a couple attempts to look at the effect of cycling infrastructure changes on real estate and business development mm-hmm. along these areas. Kind of the most commonly toted out one is a City of New York study. Locally based businesses on 9th Avenue from 23rd to 31st Streets saw a 49% increase in retail sales compared to 3% borough-wide. 49% compared to 3% growth. Which just... Anybody with statistical training should be incredibly worried by that claim. Uh-huh. And this is entirely based on on retail tax receipts, right? So this this looks great, right? It's like, oh, you put in a bike lane and then suddenly all the businesses are just doing a lot better. This is why designing a study is hard. When you're, lo- when you're creating a study where you're trying to see what the effect of one thing is on another, so bicycle infrastructure's effect on uh, how businesses perform, you have to account for all of the other changes that might have happened that isn't just bicycle infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So you need to account for changing demographics in the neighborhood. You need to account for with the bike facilities, did you also put in better lighting? Mm-hmm. Did those stores get storefront improvement grants where they suddenly now have glass storefronts? And my, that make them my impression look more is that in the case of New York, it, they did. They this did. This was part of a intensive effort to revitalize Ninth Avenue, part of that was putting in this bike lane. Right. right? So I think that's totally fine. That's consistent with this thing that like a bike lane can be part of a whole scale reinvention of a street that makes it less or auto oriented, more pleasant to be in. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is not a kind of thing that would, this study, there's a reason it's not a peer reviewed academic study. Yes. It's a piece of propaganda from the New York Department of Transportation. Exactly. Yeah. It's, all that is proven is that if the city puts money into a district through transportation improvements and other economic development activities, mm-hmm. you're going to see a boost in retail sales. Right. That that's great, right. <laughs> but that isn't necess- that doesn't necessarily the it bicycle infrastructure. It doesn't effect. mean that the bicycle infrastructure will work in any situation. That it will magically transform, or even that bicycle that infrastructure for accounts for X Y Z percentage of the change. A way to design this study that would have been very interesting is if they had been able to get data on how many people are arriving by bicycle, by foot, by transit prior Mm -hmm. to the changes on the street Mm -hmm. and what, how much they were spending versus after the changes on the street. And then you need to also, when building out your model, account for, well, there's better lighting now. So what's the percentage of the change of better lighting? Right. What's the percentage of the change? And this is that... the problem, folks, with academics and their hangers propaganda. on, such as Lily, because the bigger question here is just, it's very intuitive. The question is, can you fit more human beings into a retail area with bikes or with cars? Obviously, the answer is with bikes. So in the long run, it's I think that there's just no sensible argument to be made. Is if you can make bikes comfortable and appealing, the bikes are going to be better for a retail area. Right. But the, but the question, I mean, academically, right, is also are people changing their retail habits? Are they just moving their dollars to that neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Are they choosing to move their dollars to the neighborhood because of better facilities? Or right. did we just, why are we fitting more people in? Why is the academic question, not mm-hmm. just, can we? Okay. So I, I'm, I'm really excited and curious to see what happens as sort of bike economics gets studies more in depth, studied more in depth. 
because it is it is happening there are people doing academic mm-hmm. research oh, there's a ton of hunger for it so yeah my, my other gig i work for a website that is trying to report on these things as they come out and every time some little tidbit emerges we are just like pouncing on it and it gets shared everywhere and all these advocates are so excited to hear about it and but that also there's a risk that comes with that and the risk that comes with that is that we have studies half-baked and collecting data on this stuff is really challenging so without the time to do a really great academic study and when all these organizations are clamoring for any statistics they can get whatsoever so that they can advocate for better bike facilities you end up with really poorly done studies or working papers or things that haven't been through peer review data sources that are entirely based on surveys with blah, 50 blah, respondents blah 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 tell me bikes are good lily yeah well you know bikes are good the fact that there's so much hunger will help that gradually happen so right. you did one of these studies recently i did one of these yeah of easily criticizable academic studies yeah so tell, be honest about it how did it turn out i did a hedonic model which is a type model that looks at the individual impact on a housing price from one thing. So I looked at, if you're close to bicycle infrastructure, how much does your rent go up in real dollars? And you controlled for such things I controlled for demographics in the neighborhood, access to city center, access to transit lines, neighborhood effects, which just means... How ritzy? How ritzy the neighborhood is, essentially. All those other things being equal, if you run a bikeway through the neighborhood what happens to rents uh there is no statistically significant effect All on right. your rent advancing the world's knowledge uh, lillian carabin the only thing that i did find that had a mild mild statistically significant effect based on my data set which i created was the number of bikers in the neighborhood hmm. so i using the city of portland's bicycle counts i was able to look at okay just the sheer number of cyclists on a street mm-hmm. how does that um, influence rents. And there was a small effect from a uh, count of cyclists in the neighborhood. Hmm. My advocate hat could easily put my study on and be like, oh, it's great. If you have more cyclists on the roadway, then, you real, know, real estate values go up. Real estate values go up, which is a sexy thing to say. Or you can always flip it the other way and be like, no, don't worry about the bike lane going in your neighborhood. It's not going to bring all the yuppies out and raise your rents because mm-hmm. there's no statistically significant effect. Mm, this is the point. This is the problem with with academic studies playing with activism, mm-hmm. especially when they're done by undergraduate students, <laughs> which I was, is that you can end up with stats that can be spun either way, which is just politics. We don't have enough studies yet. This is not healthcare. We don't have these expansive amount of academic literature out there on bicycle specs. Yeah, I also don't think we have enough time. There is a ton of uh, studies on transit-oriented development, which we won't go into, but I feel like since this is a multi... Give me me the cheater version. Is Um, transit good for The cheater version is being located near rail line that is not a high-speed rail station uh, has a positive effect on your rent, uh, meaning that you will that's pay good. more that's in good. rent. Don't, don't tell me anymore. That sounds great. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. High speed rail. However, well, and, and the fact that if you pay more in rent, that means that they're, they're able to more develop a more density right? and that they can build higher and then they can increase the supply of housing near the transit station. And then it's great. Right. Right. That's the easy way to view it. Yeah. High speed rail stations, which are giant, they have to be like half yeah. mile long right, for right, true right. high capacity rail have a negative effect hmm. immediately surrounding the station 
uh, but a positive effect beyond a certain range. So essentially being right next to a lot of very loud trains is not positive on your rent, okay. which is right. the same with highways. Being located right next to a highway is negative for your rent, but being located within a half mile of a highway is positive. Right. Okay. So my takeaway, real estate is complicated. Many factors affect real estate prices. And we need better studies. The person who's ever done a study will always tell you. Right. Yes. We'll move along to our third topic, which is, I think, more concrete here in Portland, which is the fact that there are buildings going up all over town. There are all these structures rising and people are excavating and there are bulldozers everywhere. And the reason for that is that we've got 4,000 apartments coming into Portland in the next couple of years. That's not a lot in the metro area scale, but when you think about like the location where those things are, that there are many of them in central Portland and many, many of them, there are going to be more apartments on the sites than auto parking. Biggest one of those is the 570 apartment super block. It's going to be what's going to be called Hasselow at 9th or something like that in the Lloyd district. And there's only one auto parking space for every two apartments there. These are going to be pouring into the market over the next two years. I hope that they keep rents from rising as fast as they have been. We're the, the lowest vacancy rate in the country right now, which means that rents are climbing quickly. I don't, I don't even feel like I can necessarily play devil's advocate terribly well with this. That's, I'm saying that the new developments that we're seeing at right. the low the car apartments yes. are, are entirely market rate. We, I don't think there's a single one with set aside low income housing going in right now, which the Pearl, which is the gem of Portland, mm -hmm. right? Uh, is not was not built up that way. It was built as transit-oriented right. development. Right, with a bunch um, of deals that required them to put in. With a ton of deals yeah. that required them to put in low-income housing, right. which is why it's the highest density and proportion of low-income housing of anywhere in Portland. Mm -hmm. So That's pretty cool. Which is pretty cool, especially because seeing the Pearl as someone that's visiting Portland, you would not be like, oh, this has a ton of low-income housing. You'd be like, right. this is where all the high-rises are. Right. Right. Um, and that's a case of using development rules for to get rich people to subsidize poorer people by having the their condos be more expensive. And so uh, I, I I actually think that that's like a case of creating not, sort not of the quite missing how middle. it works. But well, isn't that it's not. No, that's not no. effectively what it's doing. What you're doing is saying you get a tax break on building your building because you are building okay. affordable housing units. By building affordable housing units, okay. the subsidy is actually coming from the city via taxes versus coming from... You're right. From I stand corrected. You're yeah. Right. Okay. So what I'm concerned about here is that we've got this this boom, right, where we're building all of this great central city housing that has less parking than a typical new development was. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're doing a poor job of allocating a percentage of this boom in development to low-income housing stock mm -hmm. and even affordable housing, right. which affordable housing is based on uh, a certain percentage, 200% of the median, or what is it, 50% of the I median income in the air, of the area, which yeah. is not low-income. It's not subsidized, but it is set at an affordable rate. There's, right. there's a difference. There's sort of three tiers, oh, which is low-income, affordable, okay. and market rate. Right. So there's affordable housing that, like, you can't have more than 60% of the median income to live there. Yeah. How about we just say that we're not necessarily a housing policy podcast, but interesting to look at apartments being driven by active transportation mm -hmm. and access to transit. The, the fact is that apartments that are coming in are in these relatively higher-end neighborhoods because people can 
who who are building them. They're, that's the only way they can make the money is by charging up market rents for for their new development, right? They have to be desirable neighborhoods, or the buildings wouldn't be there in the first place. But we're not talking about neighborhoods. We're talking about the individual buildings, right? And so the, one, there is very few neighborhoods in Portland that are exclusively considered high income neighborhoods right. yeah. so we compared to every other city we have a very good mix mm-hmm. of incomes and housing stock mm-hmm. what i'm wondering is why there isn't if we're pushing as a city for policies that incentivize and encourage low car development mm-hmm. why does that not come coupled with more policies that incentivize and encourage equitable housing that's the only question that's a question i have i don't expect us to answer it no i don't either but okay. it's a it's a worthwhile discussion to have and i think it's an ongoing right continual. what i don't want is for us to hold every part of the of housing policy hostage to the need for that to be solved no so, i also don't want to hold all of our low-income residents in the farthest parts of portland right, because exactly. they're the only parts of portland right. they can afford Right, and the, and the reason and the reason that that would happen is if we don't allow development in the central city, that the only way that we can increase the availability of the central city is by increasing the the quantity of the central city, and the yes. only way we can increase the amount of quantity, the, the supply we can increase the supply of bikeable Portland by increasing the number of units in bikeable yes. Portland, and these units are doing that, and the effect of that is that instead of moving into a rundown place on Killingsworth and gentrifying that block somebody's going to buy a nicer condo or apartment in another close-end neighborhood and the place on Killingsworth will remain a lower quality housing and it's going to be cheaper and somebody who doesn't have a, can't afford to have a car can live there with their mother-in-law or something. So I guess we leave you with just lots of questions with that last one more yeah. than answers. Do you have a low-car tip of the month for us, Michael? I do. This came out of a post that we linked to on the Monday Roundup on Bank Portland a few weeks ago. There was ways to booby trap your bike. I read them all. I decided that they were all pretty stupid. But then I read the comments. And that the comments had an, a worthwhile suggestion, which was if you're on a quick shopping trip, perhaps into Green Zebra Grocery, and you're not going to be there for more than a couple minutes, you can just pop and you don't have your lock. You forgot your lock, so you left your lock at home. Here's what you do with your bike. You take the front wheel off of the bike. You leave it at the rack and you carry the wheel inside with you. There's a chance that somebody's going to pick up your bike and walk away with it, but it's going to be much more obnoxious to do so than it would have been if you had left it hidden on the staple. I don't recommend doing this. It's much, much better to have your lock. Lily, do you have some TriMet tweets? I do. Since we're truly a multimodal podcast, we're Mm -hmm. sticking with the TriMet tweets. Um, Dan Christensen, our tweeting TriMet bus driver. Driving driving a bus like playing a video game, only much more smelly. <laughs> Mike Rigsby, witnessed a chick on my TriMet Max text someone because her call dropped after entering Robertson Tunnel. The stupid, it burns. Dr. Jeff, official redline gear, rolling suitcase, pink voodoo donut box, confused look. Tristan A. Cooper, be alert, any Max seat you sit on was once likely smeared by a sweaty, shirtless D-bag. And that's our show. That's our show. You can subscribe to the show at bikeportland.org slash podcast and send us any comments you have at podcast at bikeportland.org. You can spread the word about the show by searching for Portland Afoot on iTunes and leaving a review. 
You can follow me at Anomalily on Twitter. And you can follow Bike Portland on Twitter and Facebook, too. I'm Michael Anderson, Portland of Foot's news editor. And I'm Lillian Kerbake, your podcast producer. Thanks for listening, and remember to exit through the back. Pass on the left. And don't forget to thank your bus driver. The race may be different, but the message is the same. R-I-T-D-H is gonna change the game. It's too damn